get started. Um, I'm really excited uh, to welcome Nick Siever with us today um, for a number of reasons. His work is fantastic, and I think I've been, I think many of us have probably been singing its praises to many of you probably for a couple years now. Um, I think I was alerted to how fantastic it was and what he was thinking about when I remember tweeting once a few years ago something about like engineers and algorithms, and you wrote back something really lovely about the complexity of even the engineers not understanding sometimes the work they Yeah, so it was great. Anyway, so, but um, it's terrific too because Nick is a graduate of our master's program in 2010, um, and then he went on to do his PhD at UC Irvine. Um, we actually have a Professor Paul Durish in the audience as well. I don't know if Paul worked with you at all, but uh, we have another UC Irvine connection here in the audience, so that's a nice loop. Um, and now Nick is an assistant professor over at Tufts in the anthropology department. And uh, you'll be presenting on his work today. Great. Fantastic work. I'll turn it over to Nick. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm very happy uh, to be here, to be back at CMS. This is kind of fun. We never used to do colloquium in this room, so this is neat. I like the, the weird view. Um, this <laughs> is uh, a weird talk that's some old stuff for me, some sort of weird new directions for me, and I'm hoping, I'm trying to connect some dots, and I'm hoping that some people here have some new dots and new lines for me, so if you have any of those, keep them in mind and let me know. Um, so this talk is about uh, data science, and it's about work, uh, and what people do all day. Okay, so at the Billboard Future Sound Summit in 2013, a man named Tim Quirk was trying to explain his job. Uh, his title was, head of global content programming for Google Play Music All Access. Uh, Google Play Music All Access was the search conglomerate's excruciatingly named foray into music streaming. Uh, these are companies like Spotify, RDO, Deezer, hopefully you're all familiar with them, uh, that you can subscribe to an enormous quantity of music for a monthly fee. Um, so that's clear enough, but what does the head of global content programming do? Uh, Tim Quirk uh, explained that it was kind of complicated. Uh, earlier in his life, uh, Quirk had had a more straightforward job. He was the front man for alt-rock group Too Much Joy uh, from the early 1980s, that's him there, uh, from the early 1980s to the late 1990s when he left performing to work in distribution, taking a string of jobs at digital music companies that would eventually bring him to Google. Uh, if you've heard of this band, it is likely from their single Crush Story, uh, which is off their 1991 album Serial Killers. Uh, it sounds like this. <laughs> this with like the razor blade. This is like the purest 1991 that still exists <laughs> in the present day. Um, okay, so back in Too Much Joy's heyday, the music industry was populated by a variety of well-known characters that sociologists would call cultural intermediaries. Uh, so these are people like the A&R guy, uh, whose job was to be cool, to go to concerts, to scope out new artists, and to recruit them to labels. Uh, there's the DJ, whose job is to be cool, uh, to pick songs to play on the radio, uh, and to potentially start the careers of new artists. Uh, there was the record store clerk, whose job was also to be cool, uh, and to recommend uh, music to customers. Uh, and there was the music critic, whose job was to be cool, uh, and to argue about whether new records were any good. So all in all, you have a bunch of dudes whose jobs are in large part to be cool. Uh, so these folks, uh, Quirk would call them tastemakers and gatekeepers, uh, used to be powerful forces in the distribution of music, uh, but now their power has waned. 
Now you can record an album in your bedroom and you can release it yourself. Uh, now as a performer from the long tail of musical popularity, you can find your own little set of fans on the internet uh, and you don't need any of these cool cultural intermediaries to get it done. Uh, now, thanks to services like Google Play Music All Access, uh, your album can make it directly to listeners who may not even have to pay for it, which is a problem we can talk about another time. Uh, so this is the common story that's told by technology thought leaders, and it's commonly believed by people who work in the music tech industry. If not like the common story, it's something that's at least plausible um, and true in sort of broad strokes, uh, where once there were people constricting the flows of musical information, now the floodgates have opened and music is sort of all over you. <clears throat> your monthly allowance, uh, won't just let you buy the new CD from Too Much Joy, it will give you instant access to more than 30 million songs, uh, a quantity that streaming services like to describe sometimes as all the music in the world, although it is not all the music in the world. So these are the ads. Uh, there are like hundreds of these about how much music you can get. That's from RDO, rest, rest in peace. Okay, so this flood of music has been a long-standing dream uh, for a certain set of music fans and pundits. Uh, but this story goes on. When people are faced with so much music, they freeze up. What should they listen to when they can listen to almost anything? You might listen to that first Too Much Joy album, or even their obscure Christmas single, which is called Canadian Girlfriends. Um, but how would you even know that they existed? How could you really take advantage of the fact that you had access to, not quite, all of the music in the world? So this was Tim Quirk's job. Uh, the purpose of the head of global content programming for Google Play Musical Access was uh, to help you through the maelstrom of musical choice. So Quirk was in charge of programming, uh, but in the radio sense of the word, picking the songs. Um, by 2012, this kind of programming was personalized, uh, and it relied a lot on computer programmers, building things like algorithmic recommender systems uh, and tools that would slice up catalogs to make them easier to browse. Uh, so the listeners could find the music they liked, whether they knew about it or not. And that brings us to me. Uh, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, and back in 2010, when I left CMS, uh, I set out to study the developers of algorithmic music recommender systems, the other kinds of programmers, the ones that programmers like Quirk had to work with. So I was interested in what happens when this stuff that we call culture, i.e. music, uh, encounters this stuff that we call technology, i.e. software. Um, in particular, as anthropologists tend to be, uh, I was less interested in making an objective claim about what happens between culture and technology always for all time, and I was more interested in how people working at this interface made sense of it. Um, so I wanted to know how the various people trying to do things with music using algorithms made sense of their own work, what their common sense was about the relationship between culture and technology, the promise of algorithms, uh, the ineffability of musical taste, and all of this stuff. And being an anthropologist, I investigated this question ethnographically. I stayed among the people. I interviewed researchers and engineers at their offices, at companies, at, at companies and universities. Uh, I attended hackathons and conferences uh, and meetings. And I worked as an intern at a music recommendation company. So I did this in cities across the US, uh, primarily San Francisco, Boston, and New York, uh, over a period of about four years. <clears throat> so people working in music recommendation were not calling it data science when I started. Um, but as investor money and research grants started to flow around, I found that I was increasingly surrounded by data scientists. Uh, and that recommender systems, along with their related personalization techniques, were coming to be known as one of the archetypal applications of data science. Um, this term that, at the time, and maybe now, seems a little bit redundant. Okay, so I ended up studying how a set of people loosely organized around data science made sense of their jobs. And Tim Quirk's 2012 talk crystallized something for me. 
uh, as the cool guy archetypes of the old music industry faded away, leaving behind basically a bunch of nerds. Uh, these nerds were not only developing new techniques for connecting people to music, uh, they were developing new ways of thinking about who they were, the significance of their work, and the kind of power that they had found themselves wielding. So if they weren't A&R guys or music critics, disc jockeys or record store clerks, uh, then what were they? Tim Quirk had a kind of weird idea. He said that when musical flows were more constrained, the tastemakers and gatekeepers ruled. But now, the explosion of content has created a new, less sexy need. Telling the entire world what it should and shouldn't listen to has become far less important than simply making this overgrown musical jungle navigable. Online music services need bushwhackers, carving paths from one starting point to another. We're not gatekeepers. We're not tastemakers. We're park rangers. Uh, this, it turned out, was one of Quirk's regular quips for describing uh, for describing his work. This is him saying it again on Twitter. He says it often. Um, and he elaborated. He says, being a park ranger uh, means our job isn't to tell visitors what's great and why. Our job is to get them from anything they like to a variety of things they might. Uh, we may have our own favorite paths, and being park rangers, we probably even prefer the less crowded ones. But our job is to keep them all maintained so that visitors can choose their own adventure. Uh, so the rest of this talk is organized around a pretty simple question. What the hell is Tim Quirk talking about? Uh, why would he use an idealized image of a park ranger as a model for thinking about data science? Uh, what work does thinking about work in this way do? Okay, so in broader terms, this talk is about how people make sense of the new jobs that have sprung up in and around the business of data science. Uh, one of the ways they do this, as Tim Quirk did, is by making analogies to existing kinds of work. Uh, I'm going to argue that these analogies are revealing that they can help us see the norms that are emerging as something called data science begins to stabilize. Uh, and with regard to the topic of ethics, which I'm going to be particularly interested in here, uh, I'm going to outline two areas of interest. So first, I'm going to talk about how these analogies can maintain old hierarchies of labor. Uh, for example, in efforts to distinguish this new figure of the data scientist uh, from other figures, like data janitors or data plumbers. And second, I'm going to return uh, to park rangers and some of their fellow travelers, like data farmers and data gardeners, to ask questions about control and objectivity. How do people working in commercial data science understand their own influences on the systems that they build, on the data that they work with? Uh, and these photos I just want to shout out are from the UC Irvine archives. They are of UCI, like physical plant and uh, the park in the middle being developed. Um, okay, so. Tim Quirk is not the only one trying to make sense of his new job. Take, for example, this snippet from a job ad that I encountered during my fieldwork. If you had been born in 800 BC, you would have been a mystic. You find patterns that others don't see. Maybe you solve disentanglement puzzles in a higher dimensional space without even knowing how you do it. This ad was seeking a data scientist, a scientist to work at a music startup, a sort of entry-level position for Local mystics in Silicon Valley. Um, okay, so <laughs> we can find titles like this in other job ads alongside a host of other Orientalist kind of experts. Right? We've got gurus, ninjas, samurai, mystics, etc. So these bizarre titles, which are sometimes official and sometimes <laughs> informal, uh, depending on how quirky the company in question wants to seem, uh, they're a striking feature of internet industries. Where else can rock stars work alongside alchemists, supported by a team of ninjas? Um, so they're a promotion. <laughs> Nowhere. Uh, they're, they're a promotional tool, they stroke the egos of potential hires, uh, and they represent companies as fun, iconoclastic, and contemporary. Um, and uh, these emerging types of software labor appear to be quite a departure from the traditional workforce depicted in the, in the book from which I borrow this talk's title. Richard Scarry's 1968 children's book, What Do People Do All Day? Um, in Busytown, where the book takes place, everybody is a worker. 
Uh, there's a rabbit named Stitches, who's a tailor. There's a fox, who's a blacksmith. His name is Blacksmith Fox. Uh, there is a farming goat named Farmer Alfalfa, grows a cat, buys his food from Farmer Alfalfa, and even his wife, who is named Mommy, which we can talk about later, uh, <laughs> and, his son, uh, and his son Huckle, uh, are all depicted as workers, right? They all have a, a role to play. Uh, so the resulting scene here, or here, uh, is a harmonious example of what Durkheim would have called organic solidarity. Everybody has a complementary role to play, and their interdependence maintains the social stability of busy time, which is notably free from conflict or strife. Um, okay, however, as the sociologist John Levy Martin argues, thank you to sociologists for drawing this kind of thing out, uh, in his magisterial analysis of Richard Scarry's book, a busy town is marked by inequality. Uh, Martin systematically examined which kinds of animals held which kinds of jobs and found that there was a latent order amidst the 272 animals who work in the book. Uh, there are 20 species and they have 132 different jobs. Uh, so his statistical analysis suggests that the resident animals of busy town were organized along a scale of domination. Okay, so this is his illustration uh, of it, uh, with some animals like leopards and bears consistently holding jobs of authority like mayor or fire chief, while others like pigs and mice uh, held less prestigious jobs under the authority of others, like janitor or truck driver. Um, however, as you can see in this diagram, um, authority is not the only dimension in play in busy town. So Martin identified two different branches in the hierarchy. Um, it's, yeah, so there's not just like one dimension organized along like the food chain or something like you might expect, um, but there's two. Uh, so one branch, this one held, headed by the leopards and the bears, uh, relates to government authority. Uh, typically the other, headed by rabbits, relates to skill and autonomy in industrial employment. So we find rabbit tailors, like Stitches, you remember Stitches, um, who work for themselves and not for a boss. So one interesting outcome of this analysis, which I can't really get into here, uh, is that beavers and owls, who are down here, are sort of trying to be represented like a third dimension, on the other thing. They don't fit neatly into this division of labor. Martin suggests that beavers, quote, are uniquely wedded to the extractive industries of early industrial capitalism, uh, while owls, owls tend to be pre-industrial craftsmen. Okay. So what's the point of all of this? Uh, for John Levy Martin, the point is that these patterns of depiction communicate to children the idea of a hierarchy in the workforce, even without explicitly putting it in the pages. Uh, they demonstrate a latent ordering that links types of jobs to types of people, and in doing so, they start to sculpt children's common sense about the social world. Um, for us here in this room, the point is to demonstrate that our common sense about the organization of work and its coherence has been shaped by similar forces. So our understandings of occupations are not simply about their tasks, what a tailor does, or why there are firefighters. They extend to encompass the kinds of people who hold particular kinds of jobs. So as new forms of work appear that are not in busy town, uh, people find themselves grasping for new analogies, trying to find some order in the change. What do these new jobs do? And what kind of people do them? Uh, remembering Tim Quirk, which hopefully you remember still, uh, where would the head of global content programming fit into the social order of busy town? And what kind of animal would he be? Well, uh, Richard, so Richard Scarry died in 1994, uh, so we don't have him to rustle up the latent order in contemporary data work, but his style has been picked up by a range of more and less anonymous internet artists. So for example, uh, the Tumblr blog, Welcome to Business Town, uh, catalogs a variety of strange new occupations, like the data visualization guru, the authenticity consultant, the cryptocurrency expert, <laughs> and code monkeys, uh, among others. 
Okay, so armed with our new sensitivity to the mappings between animals and occupations, uh, we might note that the animals of business town seem to be more exotic and varied than the animals of busy town. They do not seem to coalesce into some sort of social order with distinctive groups or hierarchy, um, but instead they're presented as isolated sketches of individuals, and this is sort of how they appear in the Tumblr, um, surrounded by these stereotypical objects associated with their work. So here's the code monkey with his clicky keyboard, his caffeines, his sugars, his Kanban project board, and his repetitive stress injury. Um, okay, so if the, if, the, uh, if the orderly animals of busy town uh, reflect a tidy organic solidarity, uh, the wild animals of business town seem to reflect an uncertainty about emerging forms of work, right? What exactly do these people do all day? Uh, and there's an uncertainty about the corresponding social order. How do all these occupations fit together? So this brings me back to the question of strange titles. I mentioned a minute ago uh, that we can think of formal and informal titles like rock star, guru, or mystic as ego-stroking exercises that just serve to mark a company as fun or cool. Um, so they may be that, and they probably are that, um, but they are also uh, an attempt to deal with dramatic shifts in what work looks like. So programming ninjas do not wield swords, and programming rock stars do not play guitars, but rock star and ninja tell us something about how these programmers are expected to integrate into their companies and how they approach their work, uh, which might otherwise look the same. It'll look like a typo. Um, so I want to say that these titles, they don't tell you what someone does. They tell you who someone is in relation to other workers and in relation to their work. And so I want to claim that this is not just true for rock stars and gurus and mystics. I think it's also true of data science, that we can understand the scientist of data science in the same way that I just described rock star and ninja. So this redirects our question from, from whether data science is actually a science uh, to what kind of person a scientist is. And importantly, it turns out, what kind of person a scientist is not. Okay, so one of the enduring features of data science, has anyone here like done data science? Some people, some, oh, very tentative. Okay, uh, so, well, this makes sense actually. So one of the enduring features of data science is that it doesn't feel like science. It feels like doing housekeeping. Uh, and data scientists spend a lot of time cleaning and preparing their data to get it ready for science, making ambiguous signals amenable to algorithmic analysis, and spending a lot of time fixing their coding environments so everything works just so, only to break the next day for some you know, mysterious reason. Um, so this is something I observed throughout my fieldwork, and it's also the argument of articles like this from New York Times um, from 2014. For big data scientists, janitor work is the key hurdle to insights. So if you wanted to be a scientist, first you had to be something else. Uh, according to the, a 2002 Harvard Business Review article, a data scientist was the sexiest job of the 21st century. But as one of these data scientists told the New York Times, you spend a lot of your time being a data janitor before you can get to the cool, sexy things uh, that got you into the field in the first place. So if the popular imagination of data science, at least among the readers of the Harvard Business Review, uh, was that it could produce spontaneous, sexy insight uh, out of the meeting of algorithms and data, uh, this neglected all the cleanup and preparation work that had to happen first. So according to another data scientist, this is not appreciated by data civilians. Uh, at times, it feels like everything we do. Okay, so in addition to the data scientist, we've just met a few other citizens of business town. Uh, the data janitor, who makes everything nice and tidy for the scientist, and the data civilian, who doesn't really get what's going on. Okay, so I'm gonna add a figure from my own fieldwork, Kevin, uh, who described himself to me as a plumber. Uh, although he was trained as an academic scientist, his work at a music recommendation company had him in a support role, managing the data pipeline, appropriately enough, uh, that brought data to the scientists who would then analyze it. So these figures, janitors, civilians, and plumbers, they fill in the negative space around, the data, around data science, right? Helping to determine who a data scientist is by marking out who they're not. Uh, 
problem is that would-be data scientists find themselves sidelined into tasks that feel more appropriate for data janitors. So this has resulted in a minor identity crisis. Uh, this is a, a presentation at the Strata Conference from the, company, the data, automated data preparation company, Paxada, um, titled, Are We Data Scientists or Data Janitors? Are We Not Men? Etc. Okay. Um, so at least in commercial settings, the future promise of data science seems to be less about advanced new analytical techniques than a world in which data scientists have to spend less time cleaning up their data when the data will come to them sort of already ready to go. Um, the message is pretty clear. To be a scientist is to not be a janitor. Okay. So while the New York Times and many data scientists frame this janitor work as a hurdle that needs to be overcome, left in the past, given to someone else, um, media scholar Lily Arani argues that it is actually central to data science. The high status work of the scientist depends on the low status work of the janitor, and that low status work is not going away anytime soon. Um, but as Arani demonstrates, it may actually be outsourced. So because many applications of data science are in cultural domains, they're reliant on humans. Uh, low paid workers do tasks on Amazon Mechanical Turk. Uh, for example, providing training data for machine learning algorithms. Uh, others transcribe audio clips, give structure to unstructured data, identify images, produce all this kind of magical stuff that lets the science uh, get about. Uh, this work is routinely hidden away, and data janitors are like the regular janitors who work for technology companies, right? They don't pull in lavish startup salaries, they do not participate in office culture or enjoy its perks, and they are often subcontractors who are not even technically employees of the companies at all. Um, so given the history of automation in other fields, uh, there is reason to believe that this distributed, low-prestige support staff will persist, even with advances in automated data preparation. Humans will continue to fill in the margins, covering the gaps where situated human knowledge remains uh, necessary for making sense of data. Um, rather than doing away with human inputs, automation will make it easier to call up human labor, like a cloud computing instance, uh, to do some work and then to go away without benefits or job security. So as Ronnie notes, this organization of labor around computers or really around anything, uh, is not new. Uh, she writes that today's hierarchy of data labor echoes older, gendered, classed, and raced technology hierarchies. Uh, so it's now well known that computation right, has its origins in feminized labor. The first computers were women uh, who performed calculations for more prestigious men who decided what to calculate. Um, and with the advent of electronic computers, the typing, managing of documents, and performance of computations uh, was seen to fit well with the feminized clerical work of secretaries. So when I described janitorial work as housekeeping a moment ago, I meant it. Data janitors provide the support necessary for scientists to do the work they find sexy, and support work is feminized and obscure. So this is a point that feminist scholars of work and care have argued since at least uh, Simone de Beauvoir, so it's disappointing, but it's not surprising to see that this maintenance work continues even in the sort of modern world of data science to be dismissed and gendered and racialized. Okay, so basically data science is dependent on a whole set of people beyond the scientist, and one area of ethical concern uh, should be how these relationships are organized. So if we're thinking what are the ethics of data science, um, rather than thinking about the speculative concerns about the ethics of inference in a future where a computer might be able to figure out anything about you, um, I want to direct your ethical attention to the right now of data science, to the various forms of labor that it's dependent on and will likely continue to be dependent on, some of which are routinely hidden or disparaged. Uh, in spite of how important they are to the whole thing working. So as it was in busy town, so it is in business town. These jobs are not evenly distributed, and their uneven distribution is a key aspect of how people make sense of them. Okay, so part two. So although we like to think about data science as being kind of new, uh, it's actually kind of old. Uh, the name may be new. The funding is kind of new. The university data research centers aren't new. Uh, but the various stuff that makes up data science in practice all comes from long lineages. Uh, this, for example, oh good, you can see it, uh, is one of data science's ancestors. It's a 1972 plot from a mathematical anthropologist named Mike Burton. 
who uh, Paul Dirch may be familiar with. Uh, he is a UCI emeritus professor of anthropology and a kind of cranky guy. Uh, okay, so like I have been in this talk, uh, Burton was interested in how people made sense of occupations in relation to each other. Um, so being a mathematical anthropologist, uh, he investigated this question using computational techniques. The data behind this plot are pretty modest. Uh, he put an ad in the Harvard student paper and recruited six, uh, 54 participants to sort 60 occupational terms into piles. Um, they could split the occupations up into as many groups as they wanted, and they didn't have to provide any explanations for why they had done it. Um, so Burton took the results of this grouping, fed it into a multidimensional scaling algorithm, adjusted some parameters, and ended up with the plot that we see here. Um, this is the occupation space, uh, at least as it, as it was perceived by 50-odd Harvard students around 1970. Uh, so the algorithm does, is designed to arrange the occupations so that those who are very commonly grouped together are near each other. Um, so you can take a minute to take that in. Well, it's going to stay up here for a while. Um, so while I was studying the history of anthropology as a graduate student, I became interested in work like this because I saw it as a predecessor to contemporary efforts to understand sociocultural phenomena computationally in big data, data science, and so on. So mathematical anthropology, sadly or not sadly, is no longer very popular among anthropologists. It fell out of favor uh, by the end of the 1970s after a series of uh, you know, symbolic, reflexive, interpretive turns, and we don't really remember uh, this as being anthropology anymore. However, its tendencies have lived on in other fields that anthropologists and people who are sort of near to anthropologists don't really uh, think about anymore. So while I was interviewing Andrew, who was a grad student working on machine learning techniques for music recommendation, I was surprised to discover that both of us, he and his sort of EECS program and me and my anthropology program, had both written about the history of multidimensional scaling for our qualifying exams. Uh, so this is a figure from one of Andrew's papers, uh, which used comparison data, just like Burton's, about different kinds of things together, about like Burton had about occupation terms, to distribute band names in space. So this is the sort of rock and roll corner of this sort of music universe. Um, so his analysis had a lot more data about a lot more items. Um, but the basic goal was basically the same as Burton's, which was to locate items in space according to their similarity. Uh, this provides a map of sorts that we can interpret for trends and underlying data. I'm sure you're already trying to figure out why some of these things are happening. Um, we can guess features of items we've never seen before based on where they land in here, like what's going on. Uh, and for, uh, for Andrew, you could use this to recommend music to listeners. If you like some music, you know, if you like Ramstein, you might like Disturbed or Biscuit or something like that. Um, so most music recommender systems, I would eventually learn, have a model kind of like this at their heart, a similarity space that makes it possible to fill out that standard recommender system syntax, that users like you liked items like this, right? All the likes in there mean are close to each other in this. Okay. So let's get back to jobs. I really, I really love these plots um, because like the outputs of more recent data science, they sort of bloom with interpretability. You can probably pick out anything in here and tell some weird story about it. For example, uh, there's professor up at the top between architect and priest. Um, I'll let you make of that what you will. Um, so Burton interpreted this vertical axis here uh, as a prestige axis, right? So you can see lawyer up at the top, sort of laborer, longshoreman, coal miner at the bottom. Um, this gives us a scale in which to visualize that difference that I was just talking about uh, between data scientists, you can see there's chemists up there, uh, and data janitors. Here's laborers and garbage collectors and so on at the bottom. Um, so what's the second axis? Well, on the right, we've got jobs like accountant, librarian, bank teller, and computer programmer, a bit, all a bit on the positive side of the prestige axis. And on the left, and a little bit on the negative side of the prestige axis, we've got jobs like butchers and barbers and tailors and 
hey, foreign strangers. Uh, so we've got people on the right who are stereotypically tied up in bureaucracy. They work with documents and that kind of thing. And on the left, we've got people who are in the more traditional trades. Um, so it looks a lot like the plot that John Levy Martin made of Busy Town, right? Uh, where jobs are divided between offices and industries, um, and everyone has a place in the scale of prestige. Um, so Burton interpreted this horizontal axis as dependency. He said, as you go to the right, you find jobs that, quote, require the employee to punch a time clock and to take orders from a superior, not hierarchy. So these people are sort of independent, and these people are sort of working for someone else. Okay, so that brings us back, right, to Tim Quirk. According to this plot, programmers and park rangers are basically opposites of each other. Uh, and their key difference is along this dependency axis, right, with programmers who are embedded in bureaucracies and forest rangers who are embedded in forest. Um, so it may not be surprising to discover that people who are over here want to reflect themselves across the axis and, and, and get away from the sort of dependent side that they live in to get away from the accountants and to be closer to like, you know, the farmers and the butchers and the carpenters and these other cool people uh, whose occupations evince a kind of back to the land craftsmanship that's missing from the screen work of programming. And this motion, this geometrical reflection across the similarity space from the professions to the trades uh, can be found more broadly than just in Tim Quirk's little quip about park rangers. So my fieldwork coincided with what Kate Loss calls the reclaimed wood period of tech industry aesthetics, where bright modern oranges and sleek futuristic metal, do you remember the early 2000s? Okay. Uh, where all of that stuff started to give way to a more vintage, natural look. So advertisements for apps, like this one for the Facebook app Paper, which has a name like that, zoomed away from the phone and located the app in this kind of like vintage appointed office with a typewriter and this guy, what is his deal? And like trees outside, uh, this whole, right, okay. So, we're familiar with this. In 2014, Twitter actually bought a pair of 19th century log cabins and relocated them from Montana to their offices on Market Street in San Francisco. So if you've been following the Twitter news recently, you'll often see pictures of like CEOs and such sitting at these tables looking very like Twin Peaksy. Uh, <laughs> that is next to this authentic uh, 19th century Montana log cabin. Um, okay. So Loss argues that while all this reclaimed wood is nostalgic for a supposedly more natural past, it's distinguished by how expensive it is. This isn't any old log cabin. This is a specific log cabin from Montana that we bought and brought it here. Um, so looking at our plot here, uh, we can actually interpret these log cabins as a way to reflect across one axis without having to reflect across the other, right? To, move, to get away from the highly dependent people without losing any of our prestige. Or maybe even with going, going up in prestige, right? We spent a lot of money on something that wasn't really worth something. Uh, so, we are, so we are showing off you know, how much money we have. Um, okay, so outside the office, we find computer workies, workers taking more trips across the occupation space, getting outside and getting kind of crafty. Uh, so rock climbing, oh, there you are, come on, there we go. So rock climbing, for example, uh, is a surprisingly popular pastime among programmers. I invite all theories about why this is so, because I find them very fascinating. Uh, this is Mission Cliffs, which is a climbing gym in San Francisco. I visited with one of my interlocutors. Uh, this is Sight Glass, a coffee shop I would visit to write up field notes in which it demonstrates some of these aesthetics I've just been talking about, with artisanal pastries and pour over coffee and all of that. Um, we find subscriptions to lifestyle magazines like Kinfolk uh, that idealize a kind of rustic living. And we even find programmers reimagining their work in the image of craft practices, as with the software carpentry movement. 
Okay, so the contemporary allure of craft, as Heather Paxson of MIT Anthropology uh, notes in her Ethnography of Artisanal Cheesemakers in New England, it's not only about crafting objects, it's about crafting one's own life. So these self-fashioning practices link lives and work, and they provide people a way to imagine themselves out of the bureaucratic realities that entrap regular data science. But we might read in them an effort to combat the deracinating effects of information technology, the sense that people have been uprooted uh, from their connections to particular places by these new connections to more general places, right? To be connected to social media and so on. Um, so in Kate Loss's reclaimed wood period, the woods have indeed been reclaimed by people who are trying to find meaning by getting back to some idea of nature and in attempts to reroute their lives, deracinate, reracinate, uh, through imagining their work as a kind of craft. Okay, so this kind of self-possessed out-in-the-world craftsmanship is a departure from the classic vision of the computer bum, uh, which historian Nathan Ensmenger has studied. Uh, this is the stereotype image of programmers that you are likely familiar with, which was partly invented here uh, at MIT, so it's kind of fun. Uh, and Ensmenger has studied how the, this vision of the computer bum emerged from university computer labs in the 1960s and 70s. He writes about the computer bum stereotype, and I quote, they existed, this is the stereotype, uh, they existed almost entirely in an electronic universe of their own creation, isolated from material concerns and conventional social interactions, haunting the sheltered cloisters of the computer center. Okay, uh, and then he quotes computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum talking about uh, his contemporary computer bums who he did not like very much. He says, disgustedly, their rumpled clothes, their unwashed and unshaven faces, and their uncombed hair all testify that they are oblivious to their bodies and to the world in which they move. They exist at least when so engaged only through and for the computers. Okay, so the computer bum had what Sherry Turkle would call hard mastery, right? Okay. Uh, but his mastery was constrained sharply to the world on screen. It did not extend an inch beyond the outside of the computer screen. In fact, the inch next to the computer screen was probably covered in junk food or dirt or something like that. Um, so, uh, and I say his mastery right on purpose. Ensmenger has argues that, argues that it's through the emergence of the computer bomb stereotype uh, that women start to become disassociated with computational work. This, this sort of, these go hand in hand. Um, the refashioning of computer work that I've been describing seems like a departure from this old computer bum stereotype. We might expect instead to find today's coders drinking fancy coffee, going for hikes, and looking, uh, like William Gibson put it on Twitter, like bearded Methodist Sunday school teachers. Um, okay, but these new craft visions of coders maintain qualities inaugurated by the computer bum, right? They are ruggedly masculine, and we might add white. Um, okay, but many things have changed since Burton published his paper, which was only a few years after What Do People Do All Day? Um, not least of which was the ascendance of this new image of the programmer. So he ran that analysis that I showed you in Fortran on a couch-sized IBM 7094 uh, in the University Computer Lab, home of the archetypal computer bum. I will not say whether Mike Burton himself was a computer bum in this time, but that may be true. Uh, it would be pretty interesting, I think, to run this again now, to see what's changed in this space as people try to recraft visions of their occupations um, and try to fashion sort of new roles for the computer programmer. Okay, so these visions of coders as being park rangers, carpenters, and craftspeople uh, more generally fit with the trend that scholars have noted in how big data is described. It's very common to talk about data as a kind of natural resource, something you would find if you went for a hike. Uh, so we hear that data is a flood or a tsunami, that it is gold or the new oil. Uh, and as amounts of data grow and surpass human capacities of understanding, it makes sense that people reach for these earlier reference for the sublime 
the vastness of nature, and the apparent boundlessness of natural resources, right? So our like John Muir of data or whatever is going out and encountering a kind of vastness that he can hardly comprehend. Um, so indeed, at the beginning of this talk, when I was trying to describe how much music was available, I described it as a flood. So maybe there's something in the water. Okay, uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> So Cornelius Pushman and Jean Burgess have argued that these natural resources misrepresent what data is actually like. So although the etymology of the word data suggests that it is given from the Latin dare, to give, uh, that it's simply a resource for making knowledge, uh, this is not the case with the data of data science. This data is made by the data workers that I discussed earlier who shape it into usable form, but also by the users of platforms uh, whose activities are mined to produce it. So to think of data as a natural resource like water or oil is to hide all of this labor, all this stuff that produces value, uh, and to pretend that new sources of data are simply discovered like a spring or an oil field. Okay, so aside from the work that they erase, these naturalizing metaphors also have consequences for how we think about the objectivity of data and the inferences that we draw from it. So rather than thinking of data as a natural resource that can be discovered and then exploited, uh, we should maybe think of it as something constructive, which is hopefully familiar for most, most of you, as something that requires work to make and thus bears the influences of the, of the people who make it and the, and the techniques that they make it with. So it's possible and common for data sources to be biased, to neglect things, or to serve agendas. You're all very surprised. Okay, uh, so this, this is line of critique should be familiar with everyone uh, and to people working, and it's also familiar to people doing data science, which I think is something that's sort of underappreciated by outside critics. Uh, the potential biases of data and algorithmic processing have, over the past few years, become a hot topic in popular discourse, in critical writing, and even in the very work of data science practitioners who are no strangers to the problems of bias. Um, so to pretend, they know, and we know, that to pretend that our data sources simply reflect the way the world is, it results in discriminatory systems and poor performance. These issues are probably one of the things at the core of what we think about when we think about ethics and data science. But I think there's more to it than that. Uh, so as I said at the start, I'm interested in how the people doing this work in practice make sense of their jobs. Uh, so how do they think about what they're doing, and if they're aware of critiques like this, then what do they do about it? Uh, so to return to where we started, I think that titles like Park Ranger are actually answers in part to this question. So I'm going to refresh your memory. Here's what Tim, Tim Quirk said his job was. Telling the entire world what it should and shouldn't listen to has become far less important than simply making this overgrown musical jungle navigable. Online music services need bushwhackers carving paths from one starting point to another. We may have our own favorite paths, and being Park Rangers, we probably even prefer the less crowded ones, but our job is to keep them all maintained so visitors to our park can choose their own adventure. Right? So in other words, his job is to maintain a space, to find some order in wild growth. Interestingly, it's this kind of care work that uh, a minute ago I was suggesting was feminized and associated with, with data genders. There's something in here. Um, so I refer to this general tendency as the pastoral metaphor. And Tim Quirk is not alone in using it. So take, for example, Ellie, uh, who is a quality assurance tester I met at a music recommendation company. Her job was to prune the outputs of algorithms, to make sure they were working like they were supposed to, and to fix errors in metadata, uh, to weed out inaccuracies. And so although this work looks a lot like what I described earlier as janitorial, Ellie described herself to me as a data gardener. Uh, she tended to the company's data, worked closely with it, and got her hands dirty in details that the data scientists then never had to touch. Um, and these metaphors extend beyond just music recommendation to popular descriptions of machine learning more generally. So in his recent book, the master algorithm. A computer scientist at the University of Washington, Pedro Domingos, uh, he describes programming machine learning as being like farming as opposed to traditional programming, which is like factory manufacture. Okay, what? <laughs> Where traditional programmers write programs, machine learning programmers write programs that write other programs. So he says, 
In farming, we plant the seeds, make sure they have enough water and nutrients, and reap the grown crops. Why can't technology be more like this? It can, and that's the promise of machine learning. Learning algorithms are the seeds, data is the soil, and the learned programs are the grown plants. The machine learning expert is like a farmer, sowing the seeds, irrigating and fertilizing the soil, and keeping an eye on the health of the crop, but otherwise staying out of the way. So we have three examples of pastoral metaphor here. Park rangers, gardeners, and farmers, all understanding their work is essentially about care and maintenance. So it would be very easy to suggest that these self-descriptions are just more examples of naturalizing metaphors, right? like calling data water or oil. Um, after all, the offices in which these people work do not really look like the places where park rangers or gardeners and farmers work. Uh, so perhaps they're trying to fool us into believing that their work is more wholesome and natural than it is, that it's more like harvesting carrots or going for a walk than making meaning from terabytes of user activity logs or something like that. So we might be tempted to see these as our only two options. Uh, either, their work, either the people who work with data are midwives for objectivity who bring natural facts into the world, uh, or they're manipulators who produce constructions that pretend to be natural but are actually biased. Uh, so in this interpretation, Tim Quirk would be a gatekeeper who pretends that all the gatekeepers have gone away. There's a little bit to that. Um, but I think the pastoral metaphor offers the people who use it a third option outside of this dichotomy. Um, I don't see the pastoral metaphor as naturalizing because, as we know, parks, gardens, and farms are not natural. They emerge from the complicated interaction of nature, culture, and technology. So we can look at these classic examples of the French and English garden, right? Where the traditional French garden is carefully manicured with all the plants just so, the English garden is a carefully cultivated, quote unquote, wild space. But this does not mean that the French garden is artificial or the English garden is natural. Um, both grow from the interactions of plants and people in environments. So in this light, the pastoral metaphor describes a kind of ambivalence about control. Not everything in the garden is up to you, but you do play a crucial role in deciding what to plant and in tending to the landscape. So this is kind of us seeking out metaphors to say, we don't have all the control that you think we have. We have some control, but I also feel out of control all the time. It's complicated. Um, okay, so if Domingo's description of machine learning suggests a kind of idealized life on the farm where everything just works according to plan and farmers simply reap their, nat their natural bounty and go along their way, um, this is plentiful and objective uh, facts, all that good stuff, um, the everyday work of actual coding looks a lot more like the everyday work of actual farming where crops can fail and resource flows can dry up and growth and balance only come out as a result of concerted and ongoing effort. This is not just like some idealized children's book farming. This is like, oh no, we don't have any money anymore and the farm is going to have to close. Um, okay, so in other words, working with data means working within broader ecologies in many relationships of dependence and control. Uh, a text scraping bot that gathers key terms from a website is going to break when the website is redesigned. A fan club begins to stream songs on repeat all day long, changing the significance of what a play event is. A new technique for analyzing audio data is published at an academic conference, and now you want to work it into your data flows. Another team implements its bit of software in the wrong place, and now things don't work, but it's unclear why. Uh, pastoral figures have to be responsive to all of these un unanticipated events, and they never stop, right? These are just a sort of nonstop part of data science work. Um, pastoral metaphors give people a way to reckon with their own influences in these systems. When analyses can be rerun many times and countless parameters can be arbitrarily tweaked, like right, Mike, Mike Burton could have rerun that analysis and gotten something else. So while it was fun to come up with stories about that one, we could have come up with different stories if we had some different, some different outputs. Um, it's hard to avoid the idea that you as a data scientist play a shaping role in what's going on. You're picking what axes you care about. You're redoing things over and over until it makes sense to you and so on. 
So that the result is not a building that you just made from scratch, though, according to your own biases, but something more like agriculture, uh, which requires care and tending over time to grow. Algorithmic systems, they manifest connections that exceed and precede them. They resist and they surprise their human minders. Data come already contoured by cultural worlds, and the spaces that data gardeners tend to are not entirely theirs to shape. So their experience of control is not as a master planner from above, but as an interactor within, where their attempts at ordering butt up against recalcitrant others. So the ethical question here is not just how to eliminate human influence in these systems, to locate the bias and then to get rid of the bias. Um, as though getting the humans out of the way would let the natural objective truth shine through. Um, it's not possible to get humans out of the way. Um, data science depends on the people who do it. So instead, we can look to the pastoral metaphor, not as a lie that data scientists tell, but as an opportunity for imagining what an ethics of care and maintenance would look like for data scientists. Uh, what ethics would we want to govern the maintenance of parks or the planting of gardens and farms? OK, so to wrap up, uh, what have we done? Uh, we've looked at the formal and informal titles that people working in and around data science have taken on. These range from park ranger to janitor to scientist. Um, I've argued that these titles provide ways for people to make sense of their jobs, uh, how they relate to others, and how they relate uh, to their own work. I've warned you that titles like scientist bring along with them hierarchical ideas about the labor that's involved in data science, and that an ethics of data science should pay attention to how emerging forms of labor are shaped. This work is new, uh, and there is an opportunity now to grow it into something more equitable, to tend to it. Um, I've also pointed to a recent, ver uh, recent vision of what computer programmers are like, one that aligns them with traditional craftspeople rather than high-tech screen workers. So while this vision risks nostalgia and exclusion, um, it also offers some possible ways for thinking about the kind of knowledge that we get out of data science. We might take advantage of this new figuration of screen work to argue that data is not objective, not just biased, but crafted. The ethics of data science, then, will be found in the process of crafting. What kinds of knowledge will data science make as new subject positions are fashioned in and around data science? What kinds of knowledge will it make, and what kinds of people? Thanks. That's a great question. So yeah, um, as you can know, sort of the, the Twitter log cabins are a really excellent archetype for this, right? Um, because what they do is they represent this kind of craft thing as a, an American kind of thing, right? They're not like, oh, we found like 
an old cabin from central Germany and we brought it here, right? Um, so Leo Marx is sort of informing this, and I have to be careful to sort of sort out two different things. One is that when the people I'm talking about are invoking ideas, you know, like farms and parks and so on, they haven't read Leo Marx. And so I've had this moment where I was like, okay, there's, we've got farmers, we've got gardeners, I'm gonna anthropologists, I do agriculture, horticulture, and where's my like hunter-gatherers? And I was like, wait a minute, they're not doing this kind of thing, right? Like they're not using my, my terms to figure themselves out. Uh, and so I've been trying to like get in first sort of via what they're doing and then to say, okay, how does this fit? So Leo Marx obviously sort of fits in here and his sort of identification of this as something sort of American uh, is, is super relevant to this. And the other, the other point being that uh, a lot of the trends that I mentioned that I saw in the field are not, they're not limited to screen workers, right? So like everyone here has enjoyed pour over coffee and rock climbing and heights and all this kind of stuff, right? So there's also a moment in American culture more broadly now uh, that is just in part represented in, um, in computer work and I think provides now a resource for computer workers to make sense of what they're, of what they're doing. Um, the cosmopolitanism question is an interesting one and I haven't thought about it yet. Um, I would say that all the people who are doing this invoking that I've encountered are sort of like white Americans typically men, although the data gardener, uh, which is something we can talk about, why is a woman. So like data gardener, uh, woman data farmer is a man. So there's some interesting stuff going on there about the gendering of care work and sort of what kinds of care work gets you this care work, care work, and feminized, so it doesn't. Thanks, that's great. Yeah, that's for you, yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for your talk. Um, I am a, I'm a house PhD and doing a field study of Uber drivers. And so I just want to throw out a comment from my preliminary results and get your response. Sure. So unlike what you've been describing, or you just sort of demographically said that there's a lot of homogeneity, there's a huge diversity of mm, socioeconomic strata, um, not of genders necessarily, but of national origin, for example, and types of work that the driver is driving in addition to doing. Um, and yet there is, from your narrative, a similarity uh, in the description of autonomy and self used, I think, specifically, when you were talking about rock climbing, you said that there's a, an individualism that is maybe balancing out in these activities with the wasting effects of information technology. So in part, I see that narrative as imported from the kind of Uber sale to the user-producer side of that bifurcated relationship between the user that consumes and the user that produces, mm -hmm. where they're sold on the idea of autonomy um, as kind of a Silicon Valley libertarian thing. Um, and then they meet the algorithm that actually controls the work in a number of ways that people who are working part-time tend to not be so concerned about, but people who are working full-time are. So I just wanted to offer that to you and find out no, that's great. The uh, Uber is a really interesting case for this because it does sort of uh, literalize some of these things that become pretty abstracted in the context. So, like music recommendation, right? There's not a, a class of worker that's analogous really to the Uber driver, um, and so that's an interesting kind of person to have to situate in relation to it. I'd be curious actually to see what of this kind of stuff, like how that worked among the folks who work, let's say at. Uber, like people working on the data science team at Uber, how do they conceive of themselves and their and the kind of data that they have? When, to my mind, there's a more obvious sense in which that data emerges from the work of people, right? The sense, of like, okay, all of our people are out there doing this thing. Um, so I don't know, but that's great. That's that's an interesting like point in this in this constellation. I think. William. So Nick, thanks. I think you should talk to uh, 
our data folks, because I think we're missing the whole ethics point. This is a great way to sort of crack it on the head. Um, so I, this may echo the first question, but at a, like a much lower level. And it has to do with the kind of border zones where you know, data scientists are made, not born. So someone's going from a math department or whatever to becoming a data scientist. Yeah. I know in the stuff I've done on German TV, I've seen very interesting linguistic shifts when radio engineers were kind of dragooned into being TV engineers. Electricity went from being strong current to being soft juice, like they inscribed themselves oh, cool. as a sexy new thing. So here, like, are you seeing borders as people shift into particular parts of the industry? And what about transnational? I guess that's where that goes. The first question, like, what, what are they called in Germany? Is everyone using English, or do you have any sense in other cultural settings? Yeah. Are the same, you know, uh, naturalizing metaphors being used? Or? That's a terrific question. Um, so I would say my, so my fieldwork is, is in the US primarily, although, as Meryl alluded to, a lot of people are sort of moving in and out, and plenty of people who I talked to, who when I talked to them worked in the US, sort of would then move out to other countries where, you know, Berlin has a sort of music technology scene and so in London, but that's their sort of part of this world. Um, so I don't know about transnational. The thing about people becoming data scientists is really interesting. It's something that I need to look at more. And my, my experience, what I've seen, is uh, in what happens instead of data science. So data scientists, it's not like a, a job that people move into. It's this blob that starts to take over more and more stuff. So what happened was that people who didn't change what they were doing became data scientists, right? They didn't have to be like, okay, now I'm gonna go from there to here, like I was a grad student or something, and now I work and I'm really a data scientist, but like data science overcame them. And so I'm trying to think about whether that came with an attendant change in sort of vocabulary. And the closest thing I can think of is when I was sitting in on uh, a sort of machine learning reading group in the statistics department at UC Irvine, which is run by the grad students who are like, okay, we're, we're in a stats program. Like, this is now data science. We're doing data science now. They're trying to recast it as that. Um, but what would happen is that sort of, on a weekly basis, a different senior faculty member from the stats department would come and sit in and be like, this is this old thing from statistics, and we call it that. Um, and the suggestions that they had were that those were on the basis of uh, different techniques coming from different applications. So like people who worked in statistics for physics would have a certain set of terms for things, and people who worked in statistics for biology would have a different set of terms, just because these are, these are big enough fields that you never have to talk to each other if you do those two things. Um, and so what data science did, in some sense, was provide another another language for people that now you don't pretend, you just pretend you don't know any of that anymore and you have a sort of smaller language that the, st the statisticians are like, this is the thing that we already do. And not only that, it's like erasing very important things about statistics like populations and samples uh, that we think are salient to statistical knowledge production and giving you some other thing. Um, I have to think more about specifics. I can go back to my notes actually with that question about sort of how people become data scientists. So that's sort of data science happens to them in my experience. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe uh, building on that point, um, last year I said it in a talk with the head of the econ department, um, and it was a group of admissions officers who were all asking about how we could talk to prospective students. And somebody said, well, the kids today are really interested in data science. And he's like, well, we're in, we're in econ, um, and or Sloan, like, what we've been doing is now what is called that. And then a couple of days ago, as an OTL was subtweeting about earlier, uh, MIT announced a new minor in data science, and it's actually no not really new class offerings or new pedagogy or anything, it's just taking a bunch of things that have historically been done quantitatively and computationally here at MIT and recasting them in something that people know to be interested in. And I think that's a, that's a local example um, of the blob effect that you're describing. Yeah, the, the sense that science, science is sexy and with the right. sort of popularity of science, it's like, okay, this is good, this is what we want. And so 
I've been, I've been thinking more about this in the context of the of, of uh, companies rather than how it looks at universities. Although I did some of my work with people who are in university labs, um, so that's something I need to look more at. And then my question was, as a uh, white male rock climber, what yes. are your theories on rock climbing? You are the okay. I can tell you some of them, which is great. So so this is a thing. Um, I I am teaching, teaching a class. Uh, at Tufts now, the Anthropology of Science and Technology, and I've brought this up in class, and someone, one of my students who's a computer science major said, now that you mention it, all the people who are in the leadership team at the like mountain climbing club at Tufts are computer science majors, and because it's an undergraduate club, there are like a hundred officers, right? So like, like everyone is a computer science major. So why might this be? Uh, I can tell you, I don't have like a, a conclusive theory, and it's kind of more fun to speculate on. So in a speculative mode, um, here are some ideas. One of them is that uh, the sort of paths up a rock face are called problems. Uh, and engineers like to solve problems. And if you have never gone rock climbing before, it is very easy to solve a problem on your first time out. This is not like surfing, uh, where if you went out onto the ocean, you will probably fall down a lot of times before you succeed. So you get like uh, what people were calling in my industry field say it's a quick win. Uh, and you're like, that's great. Okay, I got a quick win. Now I can do this. Other things, it is a gear intensive uh, sport. So you can nerd out about the gear that you are getting. Um, but at the same time, you don't need gear to get going. So you can sort of get yourself up to speed and then start nerding out about gear or whatever. Um, there's a sort of quantitative way in which different problems are ranked, and so you can really have a clear sense of progress. Um, all these things that seem to sort of align with certain stereotypes about computer programmers, and you know, stereotypes are, are a thing, uh, and there's not, not a thing in the sense that they are necessarily real, but they're a thing in the sense of like how people are making sense of this kind of person. And so like I've been doing here, I'm interested in kinds of people and how people are trying to understand them, both what kind of person they themselves are and how other people so it was hilarious to end up at this rock gym in, in San Francisco, and I was just like, oh, this is everyone. This is where we are. Uh, we are here at the, rock, at the rock climbing gym, and we all just came from our jobs where we were typing on computers and making them do our bit. Um, yeah, so th those are some of the theories. There are other ones, and I can't remember what they are now, um, but anyone have any other theories about it? I mean, rock climbing? Rock and cost, uh, you have to have like a certain sort of class identity to feel comfortable entering a rock climbing that's yeah. So so people who are programmers tend to already have the kinds of social capital that are necessary to enter a space like this. They're these are generally not like oh I just went onto a mountain and climbed the mountain there. It's like I went to the climbing gym that's just next to the it's the climbing gym that's right next to the four barrel that's right whatever like this sort of set of things you can do all together, which I have done all together with uh, with folks working in this space. Okay. Um, can I do a comment and a question? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So um, another uh, voice I wanted to throw into the mix on the question of pastorality and the wilderness, uh, more specifically about the wilderness, is uh, David Nye. Yeah. Um, and, and specifically his book, America's Second Creation, when you got to the log cabin, I was thinking, oh, David Nye, right, because he has like all these chapters where he talks about white masculinity, white masculinity in the United States and this kind of notion that there is an inherent order in the wilderness, but it requires white guys with technology to bring it forth, right? Perfect. So he's, you know, there's a whole chapter about the axe, and there's a whole chapter about the log cabin, um, and how these symbols show up in American literature, and American art, um, in the like 18th and 19th centuries. 
So that's a really kind of like deep source of yeah. symbolic resonance that it seems like it's present, although it's telling a very different story than an ethical story, right? It's much more right. of a domination kind of story. And, and in the stories that Nye talks about, the place for women is in the spaces that white guys with technology have made safe and orderly. Um, and so that leads me into my question, um, which is, uh, you mentioned data gardeners versus data park yeah. rangers, and I thought that was really interesting, and I'd really like to hear more about that, because the question that kind of keeps coming up for me is, where is the from your respondents' perspective, yeah. um, is there a place for women data scientists in this wilderness? And if so, what is that place? Yeah, so that's terrific. The, um, the, the, yeah, the David Nation is awesome. And it's, it's, this is actually really great, because one of the interesting things about being an anthropologist and studies in the US is that in a discipline that's super defined by regions, like the US often sort of gets like de-regionalized, and you don't really have to talk about it. And so what was fun about sort of stumbling into this was like, America, like this is American stuff that's happening in my American field site. So it was kind of this like uh, uh, fulfilling, fulfilling thing to encounter. Um, about women, so yeah, so the, so the, the data gardener I mentioned uh, was a woman. There are not a lot of women working in these spaces, period. Uh, in a shorter or longer version of this, of this talk, uh, I talk about Amelia Greenhall, who uh, was a woman who's a data scientist and was one of the editors of Model View Culture, which is a sort of critical culture criticism magazine coming out of the San Francisco area. Um, and she, uh, so data scientists as a job inside of companies often looks a lot like what used to be called uh, analysts, like business analyst or business information or something like that. Um, and that work as like an analyst job was a job that women held in a kind of reasonably high percentage. Because it, was, it, was, it wasn't coding, it was kind of like analytical stuff, it wasn't like the tech end, it was the business end, and so these sort of, so that was actually, there were women there. Um, and when Amelia suggested uh, in a blog post that uh, data scientist was like maybe a crack in the wall where women who are in this one job could sort of move through to the higher paying sort of tech facing side of the inside without having to go to the sort of toxic mas masculinity of the engineering teams proper. So like data science was maybe this thing that like she said, you know, she went, she became a data scientist, she was like this title is stupid, but fine. Uh, and her salary goes up and there's a sense of maybe it's going to be empowering. Um, this was in, I can't remember what it was, a few years ago, um, and it does not seem to have panned out that way already, right? Like data science has already sort of become like, okay, scientist, we know what scientist is like, it's like Einstein, it's like a guy. Uh, and so that sort of, that sort of avenue has been, has, has not, I think, manifested. I mean, it's hard to say, I don't have like quantitative data across like the industry or anything like that, but from people's interpersonal experiences and sort of mine in, in music companies in particular, uh, not so much. But where the women do work is stereotypically in support roles in the company, so HR, um, reception, uh, but also in this sort of data gardener, uh, quality assurance kind of role. So this is literally like, we have an algorithm that every week spits out the 500 most popular artists on our service, and we need someone to look at that every week. We're gonna highlight ones that moved like a lot, and we just need someone to look at those. It's like, what happened, did something weird happen? And then just sort of delete them out. So there's like the accidental lead growth of, of the thing. So that job, that's gardening. Uh, and that is, I would say, a, a feminized job. As in it's done by women, but it's also done by young people. It's done by interns, people who are sort of swinging through, who don't have technical chops, um, but can sort of sit at the computer and be like, okay, like I'm just gonna make sure that, you know, uh, all the jaw rule on the jaw rule station is actually jaw rule and not some other guy who's got jaw rule with like a different letter or something like that. Uh, deal. Okay. Um, 
Thanks, it was a great talk. Um, uh, so I, I guess what's interesting to me is I'm kind of curious how the language, uh, if you have thoughts on how the language also helps us understand something about what the data actually is. And I feel like the scientist and the gardener, they both feel like a soil and green answer, which is, it's still people. <laughs> and yeah. like how that kind of very deep grounding of what the stuff is, is getting worked over and thought through with this language. And I say that, I mean, those, again, those of you who are following me on Twitter today, like as a social scientist, right. I see humans all throughout that landscape, and yet it is the category that often seems to be rendered most invisible by framing and perhaps even job titles, so I don't. Yeah, um, okay, so, so I, I mentioned that data is etymologically, right, from, from Latin dare to give, and we have this sense that data is not really a gift from at least us or whatever. It seems like I can take it from us. And Melissa Gregg calls this data the gift that is not given. Uh, and this is an interesting thing. If you're going to be in New York tomorrow at the end of the web, I would talk about, this is my, why it's in my head, I'm going to be talking about this sort of idea of data as a gift and like what this kind of, in a gift economy sense, what that means. Um, so what happens in not thinking about data as a gift and thinking about it as, it just as a given in some sense is that you can erase the, the giver, right? There's no, no one gave it to me. It's just like this sort of raw material. So this natural resources stuff, the stuff that, that uh, Pushman and Burgess are talking about, it all fits with that. It's the, it's actually people. I think that there's something a little bit more interesting to me. I mean, that's important. And, and insofar as the people are erased, I think it's important to put them back in. And as a social scientist, I feel like that's my job. Um, but there's something in this pastoral metaphor uh, about around like soil and the, and the nature of sort of growth like this that gets at something else, right? Which is that it's not just like, you did the labor on the platform and now I got the value and I'm going to expropriate you. There's some sense in which like there's an interaction here that's much more like, you know, people say data exhaust and this kind of thing, but you almost might even say sort of like, you know, compost. <laughs> there's a sense in which this sort of stuff is like alive at one moment and then over time becomes sort of incorporated into these systems that people can then be pretty malleable with. And in the I like working in music recommendation because the stakes are fairly low. No one is like killing anyone because of these algorithms. No one is like really oppressing anyone super badly because of these. And so people are sort of ex more experimental with what they can do. And we can look at some of this stuff about data um, and entertain sort of fantasies that would be terrible if we thought about them in other places. Um, so you can think about, okay, the people should have crunched up and turned into the compost for the day that, that the plants grow out of it. Just one follow-up. Yeah, yeah. I, I, thought, I, I thought the garden or the gardening stuff was interesting. And pastoral is an interesting word to me because I have to admit, I think of pastoral care in the sense of what clergy do. Right. So there's, it's interesting if pastoral is getting, I actually don't know if the spelling's the same. I'm just hearing I think it say. It is, yeah. um, but it's interesting that it's getting inflected through landscaping rather than. The, anyway. No, that, that's I great. I think. Yeah, I was also being inflected by pastoralism, which is my like yeah, anthropology no, yeah. modes of subsistence yeah. stuff rearing its head again. I won't. No, I will avoid. I will have to think about, rain, about reindeer and this and why it's this is like reindeer herding, but that's for another time. Yeah. I'm wondering if you were able to talk to anyone like Amazon with Campbell Church workers, where the data given isn't so much in a gift relation, where it's more of a wage relation, and what the um, concerns of these groups of people are, because in this sort of historical, historical metaphor, they're like 
data migrant workers where they are paid to do this task for very little, yeah. and then do they have any say in, um, like should they, be, should they be counted as contributors or collaborators even in a sense, because their work is um, as a whole uh, so important to this science? That's, that's a great question. Um, among the people that I studied, Amazon Mechanical Turk, uh, with the exception of the academic researchers, was not a super popular data source because these people are working on companies that have like tons of user data. They don't need someone to like do some of these sort of toy tasks. Um, so I haven't done any work on Amazon Mechanical Turkers, but there's a lot of terrific work that has been done on Amazon Mechanical Turk workers. So Lily Arani, who's work on data generators I mentioned, uh, she has done a lot of work on these sort of micro task things, um, including building platforms that allow Mechanical Turk workers to actually talk to each other and to leave feedback about about their employers, which was a, a thing, an affordance that was not built into the original system. Uh, and Mary Gray, with some collaborators, Mary's over at, at, at Microsoft Research, has been doing uh, a sort of long-term study with um, interviews of people transnationally who do work for Amazon Mechanical Turk. And this is interesting because it is always more complicated than just, okay, these people, I mean, it is true that these people don't work for a lot of money, but there's this interesting picture of why people do that and what these people think about what they're doing and what they think about their relationships with their work is. So I am eagerly anticipating the coming out of those books. And there's a bunch of articles that are out now which are terrific on this, but no, I didn't I didn't look at any of them myself. Oh. Um, so the first thing I have to say, well actually the first thing I'll say is this is a great talk. The second thing I'll say is like, Given the sort of the, the unavoidability of data science, I wonder if you've noticed that on the board behind you all the time you've been standing here is this sort of like Bayesian unconditional It's just like, it's like data science is happening. It's happening right here. Um, These are, yeah, I. But my real question is so I'm. Um, I remember reading an article a couple of years ago, a newspaper article, which was talking about how Apple is going to have a hard time hiring data scientists because their privacy policies don't allow the data scientists to do the things with the personal data that they might want to. And it's kind of interesting, it might be a hunter-gatherer thing, it suggests this notion of a band of data scientists roaming around from one corporation to another, looking for juicy problems and juicy experiences that they can get from the different kinds of data that are there. And that made me start to think about the kind of trajectories involved mm -hmm. in, again, the kind of claims that people make about what they do. One of the things about the notion of scientists is it speaks to a certain idea of professionalism and that the one's primary responsibility is to the profession rather than to the corporation. Well, that's great. <laughs> and you might be able to move from place to place more easily if one is a data scientist um, than, than if one is you know, various other things. And the, the other trajectory part here is how people imagine their, their, the jobs that they occupy. I think all the programmers and researchers I know who say, you know, to me, if there is this is like, you know, I could really, if only I wasn't going to so many of these damn meetings, I could get my job done. I'm sort of like, good, I'm sorry, everybody back. Is sort of, this is your job. Um, and it's sort of, but, but it's, it's important to hold on to that other idea of what one's job is. And so yeah. I'm wondering, in the, once the data gardeners and the data janitors and, um, and the data scientists, are those really different categories of work, or are they sort of different kind of aspirations? That is, I'm a data scientist, but I actually spend most of my time cleaning the data. But that can be, a, it can also be a negative one as well. I'm thinking of Steve Jackson's work on yeah. logical scientists, where it's like, this, it's got some great paper title, something like, you know, I wanted to save the planet, and all I'm doing is sitting on this fucking computer. And um, <laughs> about how, you know, I don't get to do that because I'm now writing grants and things like this. So right. I'm wondering about those trajectories, how people move through them, how they lay claim to various kinds of ideas aspirationally in order to hold on to this notion. No, I don't really have That's terrific. There's a lot in there. The, the, the science as a vocation kind of idea, right? That's like, okay, now I have a like 
uh, you know, the sort of Weber type, like I can, science is what I do and everything else is sort of incidental, like I will loan my sword temporarily, my science sword to these different companies and move around. Uh, that's, I mean, that's true, right? Like that's how people are moving around these spaces. Having now been in contact with people who are doing this work for, you know, five or so years, they've already moved like, like back and forth, out, like people have left companies, gone to other companies, gone to a different company and gone back to the company they started at like already in the time that I've been seeing them. So it's this hyper mobile uh, thing and this sort of constant barrage of recruiter emails to people in these jobs is sort of part of that, right? This like, you can always move if you want. Um, and I haven't thought about that in terms of this idea that maybe you have kind of leading to a profession instead, um, but that's where the title becomes kind of interesting because like you said, it, or like I was saying here, it's aspirational, the sense of like, I want to be a data scientist, but I have to be a data janitor. I wish someone else was a data janitor instead of me. And so a lot of work, uh, and this is kind of a common like, you know, we say like yak shaving in, in, in programming, right? But there's, this is common work of like, okay, I'm gonna do this and this and this and this, and then at the end, somehow like I'm gonna do the, the thing that actually is programming, and this is some sort of like, uh, Lacanian object of desire that you're never going to get to. You're just going to keep like aiming for like you know the the objet petit seance or whatever, and you're going to never get there um, because all, every time you're actually doing something, you're like oh, that's not a thing. That's just like cleaning. There's no moment where like finally you've reached like the science status. So as as and we're, if we're talking about trajectories, that's kind of interesting because that does make the scientist a kind of like kind of movement. Um, and Adrian McKenzie has written about a. Uh, machine learning programmers as, as sort of fundamentally aspirational um, in a couple senses. So one is this sense that, that Domingos was saying that they, instead of sort of programming, they program programs to make programs. So there's this kind of proleptic thing about the program they're doing. It's like, okay, I'm kind of like trying to loosely anticipate the future and make things that will be open to future variability. And that people take that on uh, in their own ideas of their jobs, right? So the people who make machine learning programs are like, I don't know, I don't have a career. I have this like set of possibilities. And so people are trying to maintain these possibilities. Like all the people who were in that New York Times article that I cited, which is two years old or whatever, don't have those jobs anymore, right? They work at, they work at other companies. Um, Tim Quirk doesn't work at Google anymore. So like people are like, Tim Quirk is also like not a data scientist. So part of what I had to do here was be interested in data science as a phenomenon that, like I was saying, necessarily involves people who aren't data scientists. And sort of to get at that was one of the biggest challenges of my field work, because I would go and say, okay, I want to know about the, the like recommender algorithm. And they're like, oh, well, the engineers are that guy. But like the engineer is like, I don't do anything. The, like, the thing is that guy, the, pro the product guy who designed it, he's like, well, I don't do anything. That's the guy who, so like it lives in this kind of like super organic, you know, amidst a group of people. So, yeah. So I, I love all the detail that you put into like bringing out the I mean what TL sort of pointed out the pastoral or pastoral um, metaphors here. But I actually want to pick up on a different one, which is what really struck me. The you know in 800 BC you would have been a mystic. Oh yeah. So you have the mystic, you have the alchemist, um, and there's something really interesting about that and sort of weird because. Then you get into the question of, you know, the scientist and is the mystic the early scientist? Is the mystic sort of the opposite of science, um, a sort of power figure? And I'm just wondering if, in the examples of that language that you've seen, like how are how are the people using that? How self-conscious are they about like what the meanings of that term are? And does it have something to do with again building off TL's point, like what the stuff that they're working on is and what they see their role as being? in terms of, you know, bringing out associations that other people don't see. That 
this is great because it sort of reminds me that the pastoral metaphor is like a set of things, but it isn't, this sort of could give you the, the sense that like everyone is like, all right, we're all lumberjacks now, let's go make, <laughs> let's go make programs. Um, but there's like a variety of different way, of course, right, a variety of ways of making sense. And so this mystical thing is one of them, and there is a kind of, I mean, it's hard to say, right, so like who writes these job listings in particular, do people who answer them say like, yeah, I'm a mystic, or they say that's stupid, that's like what someone in HR who I don't think of as being a real, you know, important thinker or person said, you know, so this, there's a lot of questions around this. I have talked with people whose literal job title is data alchemist. Um, and so data alchemist in particular is kind of an interesting thing, right? So you can think about the relationship between alchemy and chemistry uh, and the sort of history of science sense of alchemy being a necessary precursor to chemistry that sort of necessarily has to be uh, disbanded with to say, like, okay, now, now chemistry is real and alchemy is fake. So this idea that you might pick up alchemy as a sign of what you're doing is ironic in some sense, and the irony that's present in all of this is something that's super hard to work with and to figure out. Um, but there is a sort of mystical sense about it. It's like pattern finding and so on. Uh, I usually associate this with, I, because we're a disciplinary chauvinist in anthropology, I would say this is like ethnography. Like we're all trying to find patterns in crazy stuff that sort of overwhelms our senses and we can't figure out what's going on. I'm doing it too, just like you, man. Um, but there's also this broader context now in which people in popular culture, and this is convenient because I literally taught, I taught my class on magic today, uh, are talking about technology and magic together, right? So this is like enchanted objects in the, in the sort of internet of things sense. Uh, these are like little conferences and workshops like Magic Codes that was in New York a few years ago and Haunted Machines uh, that was in somewhere in the UK a couple years ago also. Um, I wish people are trying to say, hey, look, there's this whole thing going on where people are trying to recover some sort of like uh, mystical, magical, supernatural stuff. And what's interesting about that is that I have to say anthropologically uh, that these ideas of magic are culturally specific. And so the kinds that they're bringing up are kind of European magics, right? There's, these are not, uh, these are not what the like, uh, you know, New Guinea yam farmers are doing with coral in their yam pots, right? Like this is the like, oh, Athanasius character wrote this weird thing backwards, and if you dip it in a thing of mercury, then whatever. Right? Like it's that kind of thing. It's not. Uh, it's not these other potential understandings of magic. Um, I haven't seen enough like magic talk in like, out in like ordinary discussion. It's usually much more quotidian, I make pipes, I do the whatever. Um, material, it makes sense, right, that there are material metaphors that people are like, I do this kind of immaterial feeling work and I want something that's like, I'm the pipe guy, I make the pipes go there, I'm the architect, I, build, I design the house. Engineer is the same thing, right? Um, so, all that, alchemist, I had something else that I can't remember what it was. But great, yeah. Sure. Um, so I was struck by that chart by Britain, I guess, with all the jobs arrayed on two axes. Yeah. Uh, I'm an applications programmer, so I can see why I'm on the right side, because I'm subject to all of these like, <laughs> bureaucratic uh, labor control things, like agile development and oh, yeah. source control. Um, but if the data scientists, which is a completely different group, I guess, for me, they see themselves as on the left side. Or there, I don't know if they're like the chemists or what. Um, yeah, so there's, you have, you have a question around that? Yes. Um, so in terms of like their control over the labor process itself, do they actually have more control over their own work? Are they more free? Than, like are they actually more free or do they like think they're more free? 
Um, I mean, actually. I don't have a good sense of whether they're actually more free or not. I think that people who take on these data science roles feel like they get a kind of independence and a fairness. So this data alchemist, for example, was also known as a lone wolf program. So these are figures who exist sort of historically in tech companies who are allowed to do basically whatever they want because occasionally they'll do something that's like really great for the company and then the company's like, okay, fine, we don't know why that happened and we don't, we don't care. We, if we, we know that if we try to ring you in, uh, then you are gonna run away or like it's not gonna, the magic's not gonna work anymore so we're just gonna let you like run around. Um, so data science, in, in, in sort of a protean sense can live in that there are these data science teams where people are you know working under whoever and I feel like like any other job uh, people end up surprised in these like bureaucratic hierarchies that they didn't expect to be in and so a good way to point this out is to talk about what being a forest ranger is actually like uh, versus what Tim Quirk thinks being a forest ranger might be like right like if you are a forest ranger, you are not just like walking around in the forest, like clearing a path or whatever. You're probably sitting in an office and you're working on paperwork and someone left a bunch of beer cans at the campsite and there's a fire. There's like this kind of stuff. Um, so that's the important thing to remember is that when we say like, who, are they like actually independent? Um, what we're talking about here is more like, do, what do people think, including people who have the jobs? Do you have a question over here? You raised your hand a while ago. Um, yeah, just kind of tracing what we were talking about earlier about um, the kind of uh, metaphor of the pastoral and the metaphor looking different for women. That it also looks very different for uh, various ethnic and racial groups. That yeah. um, I was thinking about this, this list here and what is kind of the connection between agriculture and say, black people in America. And then yes. you get down to crop picker and sharecropper down there. And how does that, I, I imagine that that is kind of wrapped up in how we're seeing that even when there are women in this space, they tend to be white, and that people yeah. of color very much excluded. Uh, yeah, so I can talk about some of the numbers, not specific numbers, but things like sort of tendencies that I saw in fieldwork, which is that the vast, vast, vast majority were, were white in these in these spaces, and like you're pointing out here, uh, the prestige axis is correlated with other things, and it is a, and it's not you know it's no accident that we have sharecropper crop picker here, and that farmer though is up there, right? Um, again, 1970, but like presumably if people if you could get people to reasonably figure out what a sharecropper was in a contemporary version of this survey, you would expect. Um, so yeah, it was it's very white space, and so I think a lot of these kinds of masculinities are white are white masculinities also. Um, we can talk a little bit about sort of like lean-in feminisms and that kind of thing that are also circulating in this space. But what's been interesting about the sort of this world in particular, and I think music recommendation is interesting because people in that feel kind of an obligation to be like culturally vanguard. And so in my experience, there's been a lot of people, so there's a lot of things were blowing up during the time that I was in the field, right? A lot of these things with companies releasing their diversity numbers, whether they were good or not, because there's just so much pressure to say, like, tell us your, you know, what percentage of your workforce is uh, minority, white, uh, women, and so on. Um, so this was all happening while I was in the field. Uh, and so people were talking about it a lot, and people who worked in music in particular weren't wanting to be like, no, we are good. Like, we are, we have, we are like the good guys on the side of this. So they would sort of uh, oppose themselves to say the rest of like Silicon Valley, which would include companies like Uber, for example, um, and to say, no, 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 in music, like we've always been like cool and, and like, you know, uh, cross-racial and so on. There's, wait, where's my, talk about race. 
there is some white stuff that happens uh, in, <laughs> in race, uh, you can guess. So one of the first things that happens when you do these kinds of analyses usually is that, is that music just splits in half. Uh, into sort of black and white music. And so this is no accident given the history of the genre as, as a category uh, and you know, R&B being coming from race music and the country coming from hillbilly music and sort of this like originary in the record industry divide. Um, that gets uh, not talked about a whole lot in the way that people do this work because they sort of just see these as like, as like data points. Um, but I say one of my main field sites there was out of a like 70 something people, there was one, one uh, black person uh, and a couple Indian uh, Americans and that was it. Um, so it's not like a shining sign of diversity um, by any means, although it's a sense, they feel like they are working harder than other people are at it, if that makes sense. Um, any other questions or are we out of time? Oh, one yeah. Last one? One. yeah. Um, uh, you end your talk with this like optimistic like maybe this is an opportunity to uh, <laughs> job. Like, yeah um, to to like formulate a new sense of like what an ethics of like data care and data maintenance should look like. I'm wondering if you interface at all with um, kind of the like other world of data like analysis, I guess, of like data journalism. Uh, and we have a class here of like data storytelling studio. Um, like coming from a background that is traditionally like obligated to the public good and so on. Mm -hmm. Like I'm wondering like if there's anything there. No, that's great. I have not interfaced a lot. I mean, I know a lot of people who work on data journalism, but for my own research, it hasn't it hasn't come in a lot. The thing that I would uh, that I would connect to. Oops, how did I lose it? Where are we going? Data science, social good. Optimism. Oh, uh, about uh, about uh, these sort of like what are the opportunities, right? To think about this not just as like a lot. But it's very easy to do the like demystifying thing, and easy but important to be like, hey, don't demystify the thing. Like, let me show you what's actually happening under the hood. That's great. Um, but what I do also want to know is like, what work does this people do for the for the people who are doing it? They're not like monsters who are like, yes, now it is time to expropriate everyone, right? So a, a key question for people who think that that's happening or want to know what's going on or want to make critiques that land with the people who are actually doing this stuff is to understand why it makes sense to them. Like they, if they say they know these critiques and they keep doing the same thing they were doing before, how, like how do they justify that? How do they make sense of it? Often it's that they're interpreting terms that you're using in a different way. So I have a paper about context, which is like this, where people are like, you take your data out of context, you gotta put it back in context. And they're like, okay, every time you do something on your phone, we're just gonna get what time it is and exactly where it is and put that all in a database so we know everywhere you've been. And now we can put everything in context and everyone's like, no, that's not what I meant, that's not what context means, but you have these sort of moments. Um, but an interesting project that I think is underway now, uh, and I don't think I'm not like uh, outing them too soon, uh, so Anna Hoffman, uh, who is an ethicist who works at the Data Science Center at, uh, at Berkeley, um, has, we've been talking a little bit about, so there's all these metaphors, right, of like what data scientists do, like okay, we're scientists, that's a metaphor, or park rangers and so on. A lot of these professions have codes of ethics. And there's an interesting question to be like, what would it look like, so say journalism, right, would be a professional with a code of ethics, to take that existing code of ethics and stick it on data science and see sort of like what kinds of porting you can do 
amidst those. So that's kind of, that would be like one interesting sort of brute force way kind of to do it. Say, is there a code of ethics of park rangers? And if you're such a park ranger, then like, <laughs> what do park rangers feel obligated to do? Like that would be an interesting way to sort of pick up these analogies and use them productively, not just to, to, to unveil something or to demystify it or to debunk it, um, but to say, hey, okay, I'll take you at your word. Sure, you're a farmer. What do we wish that farmers were doing? Um, because, sure, why not? Um, yeah, thanks, that's a good question. All right, thanks so much. Thank you, everybody.